If we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. That's what God's word says to us. We read it last week. So whether you are here this morning and you're a Christian or you're here this morning, you don't think you're a Christian, what John is saying is that we all have sin remaining in our lives. And the question I want to ask us this morning is, how do we respond to that? That's what we're going to be thinking of. One of the most prominent motifs, one of the most significant, obvious, common storylines of literature, whether it be ancient plays, whether it be modern movies, whether it be in the East or whether it be in the West, books, movies, TV are often about the concept of people on a journey. And in particular, on a journey home, we see it in The Wizard of Oz. We see it in the movie or um, the book, The Lion King, the journey home. Journey home is so prominent, whether it's a story that's written a long time ago or a modern one. It's, I think, so prominent because it's so easy for us as humans to relate to a sense of just not being where you want to be and really longing for a distant place of home. You see, the reality is that we as human people are all on a journey. We desperately want to be home. We want to be in a place of peace. We want to be surrounded by comfort. We want to be in a place where we can just relax and be ourselves. We're all on a journey home. The oldest and most famous story of a journey home comes from Homer's Odyssey. Uh, You might remember the story. I had to actually read it in the last couple of weeks because I totally ignored anything that went on in English at school, but perhaps you were more diligent than me. If you paid attention, it's a story written about 700 years before Jesus of Odysseus or Ulysses, and he's the king of Greece, and he's been fighting the Trojan War For ten long years, and victory has come to him, but that's just the start for Ulysses because he's now sailing back home to his family, to the island of Ithaca, and the Odyssey is a ten-year journey of him heading home. And it takes ten years, not because of the traffic, but because he's assaulted by many dangers, toils and snares, captivity which he escapes. He's thrown off course with his men on the boat as they sail through treacherous waters. They skirt past the land of the siren who sing enchanting songs, seeking to lure the sailor towards them and towards the rocks. And they're close to home. But... Before they get home, they need to pass through the Straits of Messina. And the danger is not too much gelato. The danger is either side of them. Firstly, on one side of Ulysses and his men as they sail home is this six-headed monster, Scylla, who eats sailors and their boats for breakfast. And on the other side... The danger is Caribdis, who would suck into his whirlpool ships and men and spit them 
out again. These are narrow straits as they approach home. And there's great danger either side, the six-headed monster, the whirlpool so close to home. And for us as Christians, we're on a journey home. And it's not that different to Ulysses because the battle has been won. But just because the battle has been won does not mean that there is not danger for us on our way home. See, we only start to realise the danger on the road home when we head in that direction. We start to become aware as Christians of the dangers that beset us. We might have got past the song of the sirens from last week, deceiving ourselves that we don't sin. That's the easy bit. That's the easy bit. But the hard bit is what we're going to see this morning. The narrow straits before us. And there are dangers for us either side. On one side, there is the danger, the six-headed monster of defeat. Do you feel defeated as a Christian? Do you feel so burdened by the reality of your sin? crippled by the shame of it, weighed down by guilt? Do you see your own sin and it just it grieves you deeply? Do you see your own sin and it just it empties you out? You feel a low-grade anxiety when you think about who you are before God? There's a sense of self-loathing as you think about anything to do with God. You feel cynical about what he says and what he says you can do. You feel a sense of despair. You feel defeated and when you feel defeated, what do you want to do? You just want to give up. Defeat. That's one side. But on the other side is this powerful whirlpool of complacency. You've been a Christian for a while. You've, you know what the Bible says. You've gone to countless Bible studies. You've heard even more sermons. And actually, you're, you know, you've got through life pretty well already. You're competent in a lot of places in your life. You know how to kind of work things out. God's got you to a place of, of relative comfort in your life. You know about sin, but you know about forgiveness. And you're comfortable. Perhaps that you're comfortable because you've, you've normalised sin. That's something that we do. You know, in a sexualised world, when you think about purity, well, you know, who hasn't had a lustful thought? That's normalisation of sin. Or perhaps you redefine sin. Maybe you, you thought of something as sin, and you've always thought of something as sinful, but... You've discovered something. In fact, the world has given you a new way to think about sin and so you redefine it. You either normalise sin or you redefine it. Oh yes, I can submit, but only with my conditions. Redefinition of sin. And often what this does is it means that we become casual. We become casual with our sin. You know the whole cycle of life, you've been through it so many times. God forgives and I sin. 
And perhaps you've got a, a theology to reinforce that. You know, Christians aren't perfect, are they? Christians aren't perfect. What's, can anyone finish that phrase? Christians aren't perfect. Just forgiven. That's great. It's fantastic. But if you take that to mean that you can be complacent with your sin, John says to us in 1 John chapter 2, no. Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, says, the governing assumption today amongst professing Christians is that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. Christians forever, all the benefits, he forgives, but never become disciples. What does Jesus say to his disciples? What do they do? They left their nets and they followed him. What have you left? Which is it? Which danger is perhaps ensnaring you? Is it defeat, overwhelmed, burdened? Is it complacency, God forgives? Or is it both? And perhaps both, even crazily, I think this can happen, both at the same time. I'm going to pray for us that God might show us what it is to be called safely home. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your gospel and in your word you teach us what it is to come to you to know who we are, to know the forgiveness that we have in your son. So would we come to your son? Would he come to us? And would he lead us safely to the other side? Amen. At the beginning of chapter 2, if you open up to 1 John chapter 2, John writes, My little children, I write this to you that you may not sin. Now that's, that's pretty interesting if you're around last week because last week we saw that um, what John was saying was that Christians can't deny their sin. John was saying that sin is a reality. But here now he says, although sin is a reality, there's something more for us to understand. It's that he's writing because or for the reason that they may not sin. You notice there he uses... The phrase, my little children, John is a parent here, or like a parent. And every loving parent knows that they don't want to see their children make decisions that are harmful and destructive. And so if you're here this morning and you feel defeated, I want you to know that this is a message of hope. This is a message of hope. Because it means that change is possible. It means that although you might feel burdened by your sin, God's word is saying to us that we can change. If that were not the case, why would John write, I write to you that you may not sin? He's writing because what he knows about God and the gospel can have such a transformative effect in our lives if we could just for a moment see it, that we can overcome the reality of besetting sin in our lives. And it's not possible. It's not possible because we can pull up our 
bootstraps. It's not possible because we're following seven steps to a healthier Christian life. It's not possible because we're doing more exercise or feeling more happy. It's true and it's possible because we are loved. He says, my little children, there in verse 1. It's a term of endearment. If you know that you are loved, that's powerful. That's powerful. And John is saying, my little children, you're loved by me. But more important than that is that we are loved by God. John will go on to say, if you flick over to chapter 3, you'll see there, he says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. You know, they've done studies of children who take upon the traits, um, the work habits, uh, the lifestyle of their parents. And uh, through the studies, what they've found is if, if the parents are generally good, you know, what we might consider um, uh, healthy in their relationships with their children, the children are more likely, statistically through these studies, to take on the traits of their parents. Well, here God's word is reminding us that if we are a Christian, we are well loved. And what we need to remember this morning is that if we are well loved, that there is a power in that. There is a power and there is a potential for change. Often I think we know, yes, we know God loves us, but we never, we we seldom take the next step to realise that if he loves us, That has a tremendous power for our lives. His love is just not a concept that we believe in. His love is a transforming reality that changes the way we think about what we are and how we live. Do you want to change? Are you happy with your life? Or are there things in your life that you're not happy with? What do you want to change? You know, if you could just step back, what what do you want to change in your life? Because I'm guessing for most of us, If we're actually real for a moment, there are plenty of things that we want to change. There are plenty of circumstances we want to change, but I'm not talking about them. I'm I'm not talking about what you want to change in terms of a better job, better health, better relationships. What I'm talking about is a change in how we respond to our circumstances. I'm talking about a contentment and a joy in any circumstances. I'm talking about dealing with the discontentment and the unhealthy ways in which we engage in relationships, the passive-aggressive, which is just a form of anger, the cowardice and fear that means we won't enter into difficult relationships because it's just a bit hard, the way in which we treat our own bodies and treat other people's bodies the deep-seated anger that resides within us and means that we have an inability to forgive, the incessant insecurity that means that we're always defending ourselves. Do you want to change? What God's word is saying to us is that we have been well-loved. And if we have been well-loved... That is the most powerful reality for change that our world has ever known. There is 
a possibility. If you are weighed down this morning, if you are heavy burdened, you need to hear a message of hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But secondly, maybe you're not weighed down. Maybe you're complacent. There's hope for those who are heavy, but there's a corrective also for the complacent because John is writing that these Christians may not sin and he's reminding also the complacent Christian that it's not God's intention that you sin, that God does not want you to live in sin. He did not send his son to die so that you can remain in sin. He did not adopt you into his family so you could willingly choose to live like a slave. His intention for your life is that you would be like him. And that a life that is complacent about sin cannot be called a Christian life. See, some of us have got to the place, I'm sure, where we're just numb. We've become immune. Perhaps we even chewed out right now because you know what I'm going to talk about. We've become immune to the reality of sin in our lives. We're calloused. It's a bit too hard. We've got a compartment in our heart, in our mind, and we just don't want to go there. I lived for two years in a share house while first at university. First time out of home with three other boys. And it was a wild house. It was a lot of fun. But it was a wild, and may I say, the distinguishing feature of our house was mess, dirt, chaos. And occasionally there would be smells that uh, emanated from the kitchen because we hadn't done the dishes for a week. And so that would mean that we needed to do the dishes. And yet this one time, as the uh, bins were taken out, the dishes were done, the, the smell was still there. And so we... Oh, or maybe a vacuum, so we did a quick vacuum, and then the smell was still there. So we thought, we've done everything. We've done everything. And so we just ignored the smell. That was until about three months later, when actually I think it was Mandy was helping us clean the house. And she suggested we move the couch. And we moved the couch. You know what was under the couch? A dead rat was under the couch. You see, we'd, we'd ignored the smell. And you can kind of get away with it, particularly when you live in it. You can get away with ignoring that smell. The reality is that sin in our lives is like a de- dead rat. It's often that smell of rottenness that we can kind of live with. We know it's not quite right, but you know what? It's amazing what you can put up with. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are the the dead rats in your life that you're just kind of ignoring, that you're just hoping that they'll go away? In fact, they probably have gone away because you've learnt to live with them. Why do you think, then, that you can be complacent about your sin and say... You have a relationship with God. Why do you think you can live with the dead rats of your life and think it's okay? 
See, the reality of the gospel is it confronts us. It confronts us when we're overburdened by guilt. And the reality of the gospel is that it confronts us when we're complacent about sin. And how does it do us? Either way, if we're defeated or complacent, what do we do? Have a look there in verse 1. If anyone does sin, if they're defeated by sin, if they're complacent about sin, we have one who speaks, who advocates to the Father in our defence. An advocate is someone who vouches on our behalf. And so if the issue perhaps is our character, an advocate, when they advocate, and this is particularly the case in uh, the uh, biblical times, an advocate puts their rep- reputation on the line for us. If the question is around your financial stability, then a person who is an advocate might say, I'll put down all my assets as collateral and I'll vouch for this person. John says that we have an advocate with a father. The image is of the court of law. We have someone who will act on our behalf. There is a sense in which it's right to say that Jesus is our lawyer, but it's, it's not quite right because... A lawyer is generally someone who's paid to perform a service and whether or not you're guilty or not isn't really part of the lawyer's uh, concern. And so it's not simply that Jesus is a lawyer because the sense of the word there is that Jesus is a helper. He does speak for us in defence in the sense of a court of law but it's more than that, he helps us. He witnesses and he testifies for us. He's a friend for us, is even some of the sense of the word there. He lends himself to help us. Because it can feel like we're in a court. I don't know if you've ever been to court. I've been a couple of times with uh, different people to be there with them. But life can feel like a courtroom. Firstly, there's the court of public opinion. You know, it's like an exam. It's a court of public opinion when you go out for coffee. It's a court of public opinion when you look at the mirror. It's a court of public opinion when you hear people's criticism. There's one court, but there's another court. There's an even higher court with a judge who's even harsher. And that is the court of your own standards. Not out there, but in here the court of personal opinion, the way in which you don't meet even your standards for yourself. You're always trying to, but you're never quite getting there. And then there's the court of divine opinion, how you fare before God. What do we do when we don't measure up? We compare, as we saw last week, ourselves to others as if being better, at least in our opinion, somehow meets God's standards thinking that if we just focus on all the good things that we've done, that will cancel out all the bad things. What do we do if we don't measure up? If we don't measure up in the court of public opinion, or our own opinion, and most importantly, God's opinion? Verse 1, we need to remember that we have an advocate, one who has come to act on our behalf, one who places himself on our behalf. 
You see there at the end of verse 1 that Jesus is the righteous. It's his reputation that is impeccable. Imagine uh, you're going for a job with Transparency International. You know, uh, that organisation that makes sure that people aren't corrupt and uh, corporations and nations uh, aren't corrupt. And imagine you went for a job with Transparency International and you took to them a reference from Eddie O'Bead. You wouldn't like your chances, would you? But see there in verse 1, it's his reputation that's been placed in a line. He is the righteous one. It's his sinless life that is being put before the Father. The one who knew no sin, the one who has met the Father's standard, is the one that goes before the Father on our behalf. Jesus is not simply our goal. Sorry, Jesus' righteousness is not simply our goal. It's also our comfort because he has put his life down. He's put the collateral of everything that he is on our behalf to advocate before us with the Father. And that means, you see there, that as he does that, he is not only righteous, but he is a reconciling sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement there in verse 2. We've moved now in verse 2 from the court of law to the temple. We had our first reading from the book of Leviticus that picks up some of these ideas of atonement or at one at one One day, oh, sorry, um, what, what is atonement? What does it mean? I want to give you an illustration as we close. I was about 12 and I was with my uncle and auntie. We were sailing in their boat up off the coast of Port Macquarie. I think we were heading in um, to a harbour. And a couple of hours out of our destination within the harbour, I think it was Loriton, um, a storm came. But uh, in the week before we'd left Sydney to sail up the coast... Um, this was, I think, in the early 90s, my uncle had got a new jacket, a new rain jacket, wet weather gear, we used to call it. And um, usually he had this um, really old yellow PVC plastic kind of wet weather gear. But uh, he got, for the first time, one of these breathable jackets. And we were fascinated by this. It looked so cool, cool. It felt so Nice. As the storm came up, we were asked to come down out of the cockpit because everyone was getting a bit worried. It was a pretty significant storm. We weren't worried. We thought it was exciting, my brother and I. But there, as I looked at my uncle, he had this jacket on. It All you could see with his eyes because the rain was coming. The wind was up. The storm hit. And as he sailed the boat into the harbour safely, he came down into the cockpit and he took this new jacket off. And there as he took this new jacket off, his clothes were amazingly dry. What does it mean that Jesus is a sacrifice of atonement? It means that he himself is like that jacket. He wears the brute force of the storm and he protects us. He keeps us safe from the reign of God's judgment. 
That is what a sacrifice of atonement is. And that is what we need to remember as Christian people, that he has endured for us the penalty of the guilt that would weigh us down. And so we need to remember, if we are weighed down by our sin, that every sin, both past and present, is the sin that Jesus has dealt with. Jesus says on the cross that we are free because it is finished. And so if you're weighed down by your sin, I want you this morning to know that Jesus intercedes for you. I want you to know that he has worn the brunt of the full force of God's wrath against every sin that you have committed. And that means that you can lift your head high. You can lift your eyes and you can know that you're not in a state of defeat because the Lord Jesus is victorious. You don't need to bear the burden of your sin because he has borne it for you. And if you're complacent about your sin, you need to remember that every sin that you have committed and every sin that you will commit are the sins that Jesus has taken the punishment for. And so you can never view your sin lightly. See, this is how God is calling us home. He's calling us home because there is danger. There is danger before us. But in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, he invites us to come to him. He invites us to come to him because with him is safety. When we know that the Lord Jesus has dealt with our sin and brought us home. May we trust in him. May we trust that he advocates on our behalf and that he has died for us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We thank you now, Father, that we can come before you because your Son advocates for us. He speaks to you even now as we pray. And indeed, Father, he has borne the full force of your justice for our sins. So would these truths of your gospel be precious to us? And would you bring us home safely for the glory of your Son? Amen.